New Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be looking at trauma, dreams, and nightmares. My guest is Dr. Lori Nagdal, who is a psychologist as well as having had a career in journalism. She is author of The Five Gifts, The Sixth Sense, and Dancing with the Wind. Lori is based in the New York area, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Lori. It's a pleasure once again to be with you. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for having me as your guest again. We're going to be looking at nightmares, trauma, dreams. And I have to say, uh, we're taping this or recording it, uh, to be specific, in January 2021. Uh, It's been a horrendous year for people between uh, the COVID pandemic and the uh, invasion of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., the election and the aftermath of the election, the prospects of two impeachments for the president of the United States. Uh, people are under a lot of stress, and for many people, it's quite severe. There is a cumulative stress level that is beyond uh, anything that I have seen in my lifetime. I'm sure that's true for you as well. Um, The turmoil and the turbulence, though, has been building up for quite some time. And uh, I I think it's just like a pressure cooker that's reached a critical mass at this point. At least we hope it's reaching a critical mass. (laughs) Yes, it could get worse. It, it could get much worse. As a matter of fact, I expect it will get much worse. We haven't really begun to face the economic consequences of uh, the COVID pandemic. So uh, we're probably in for a very rough ride ahead of us. And I, I suppose in your case, you've been dealing with problems related to chronic illness and chronic stress now for a long time, both personally and professionally. That is absolutely true. Um, I um, I used to joke, I spent 20 years in uh, the news business, the last 10 years at CBS News, and there are some days when I would leave after covering I don't know how many disasters and fires and earthquakes and wars and bombings. And I would say to my friend, when I retire, I'm going to take up a low stress profession, like being an air traffic controller. (laughs) And uh, eventually I burned out uh, covering the Iran-Contra hearings and I developed a form of Epstein-Barr and I was disabled for three years. And when I say disabled, I mean I was bedridden and uh, there was no conventional treatment for uh, Epstein-Barr, there may still not because it's a virus. And so I discovered meditation and I began to look into alternative types of healing, uh, nutrition, uh, supplements, and Chinese herbs. And uh, I believe that, you know, were it not for discovering meditation and uh, the nutritional component, I might have been permanently disabled. 
One of the things that you learned, and I, I think you express it well in your book, The Five Gifts, is that sometimes uh, these traumas, these tragedies are a gift in disguise. I think you sometimes refer to the idea of a sacred illness. Yeah, the, the concept of a sacred illness, a very beautiful one that was um, from a woman named Dina Metzger, who was an amazing author and poet and therapist. And uh, it's particularly relevant right now because uh, I have two uh, support groups for people who have long-haul COVID. These are people who, many of whom are, are young in their 30s and 40s, who were previously healthy, they're no longer testing positive for COVID, but they have a whole range of, of symptoms, many of them neurological, um, many of them quite severe, uh, strokes, blood clots, uh, nerve pain, brain fog, um, insomnia, and uh, muscle aches, and primarily this extreme fatigue. And uh, one of the things that has been very helpful is to offer this um, reframing, I guess a repositioning of what it means to live with a, a severe chronic illness, which is that a sacred illness is one that educates us and alters us from the inside out and provides experiences and therefore knowledge that we could not possibly achieve in any other way. And it aligns us with a life path that is ultimately of benefit to ourselves and those around us. And we are finding that um, in both groups, one group is for firefighters who have long COVID, that the ability to shift the perspective from the, uh, the, de the de debilitating symptoms of long haul COVID to be able to perceive it as a gateway to uh, spiritual growth has really been, um, I'm, I, I keep getting told by people, it's a life changer for people. Because we have a stigma against illness in this culture that uh, goes back, I guess, probably centuries. You know, we worship healthy, athletic, um, attractive, active people. And there is uh, a tendency when we become seriously ill to think of ourselves as failures and to feel ashamed because we can no longer be productive or active or do the things that we, we uh, identify with as being part of who we are. And so the, uh, the awareness that there may be a spiritual or that there can be a spiritual component of, of inner growth as a result of having had the, the lifestyle in the outer world suddenly taken away is something that gives a new sense of meaning and purpose to so many of uh, our patients, uh, both in, in both groups, uh, at helping people who feel kind of embarrassed or they feel, what's wrong with me if I can't take a walk? Or what's wrong with me if I can't take my kid to school? Or what's wrong with me if I can barely make it to the kitchen or the bathroom? And it, it helps to relieve that burden of guilt and shame and the stigma of illness that really permeates our culture. Let's talk a little bit about the long-haul symptoms of COVID as you describe them. There, there's been very little discussion of it in the media. And I wonder, for example, of people who don't show any symptoms at all uh, and test positive, if they aren't also vulnerable to these long-term symptoms. Great question. And the answer is 
I don't think anybody knows. You know, one of the uh, reasons why we're only starting to hear about long COVID uh, in the media is because this is a disease that is really a year old as far as we know. And uh, there are no protocols. There is no established um, trajectory for healing. Um, people who had acute COVID for a first month or two months at the beginning and then tested negative, and then a month or two later, uh, they still can't get out of bed. They're having shortness of breath. They're experiencing this you know, tremendous wall of fatigue or they have neuropathy, they have stinging nerve pain, uh, they're developing migraines and insomnia, and uh, some of them even develop uh, mini, blood, mini uh, strokes and, and mini blood clots. Um, these phenomena are happening to so many people who initially had COVID and then tested negative for COVID. We don't really know. Uh, about people who were asymptomatic for COVID when they were tested, whether they might be incubating a different form of COVID. And if they do start to develop these, what we call mysterious long haul symptoms later on, that perhaps they did have some form of COVID that didn't respond to the initial tests because it's all so new and it's just overwhelming for the medical profession because they're learning, you know, along with the patients themselves. Well, you've experienced Epstein-Barr, uh, sometimes known as chronic fatigue syndrome. Are they similar? Epstein-Barr is one of the viruses that causes chronic fatigue syndrome. There's also something called cytomegalovirus, which is um, actually one that, uh, that I tested for, and I think there are several others. Um, in England, it's called ME, uh, which stands for myasthenia encephalitis, I think it's some kind of, they just call it ME, uh, and that's their uh, medical or clinical term for uh, chronic fatigue. But the prevailing symptom of long-haul COVID is the chronic fatigue and, um, and the brain fog or the ability to think clearly. Um, and that is, of course, very, very debilitating psychologically to people who were very often, you know, practicing yoga and meditating and, you know, healthy and active and working and had professional, you know, careers and were par parenting, taking care of their own parents. And so they, the inability to think clearly and the inability to, uh, you know, perform basic physical tasks, it takes, it, it takes a big toll out of people psychologically. What percentage, do you have any idea of people who uh, contract the virus or test positive are going to have these long-haul symptoms? You know, I've spoken to a few doctors um, and a few patients who have spoken to their doctors. And, um, you know, it's still too young to say, but we it could be about 30%, according to some doctors, about 30% of people who have tested positive and then test negative for covid uh, and I think in Scientific American, there was a, a British scientist who estimates there could be as many as 5 million long-haul COVID patients worldwide. And in the United States, uh, one of the activists uh, in one of our groups, um, she, she estimates after speaking with her medical sources, there would probably be over 2 million people in this country who have long-haul COVID. And 
I'm presuming that we really have, as with the Epstein bar that you described, no standard medical treatments. There's no standard treatment, uh, although uh, the do doctors and hospitals have learned uh, very quickly uh, how to uh, treat people who come in with acute COVID. Uh, they're doing less intubating, less ventilating. They are um, using uh, oxygen and plasma, and I believe uh, um, a, a drug ivermectin and remdesivir, uh, which I can't pronounce. But uh, there are several drugs that are actually uh, very, very helpful in um, you know making sure that people can actually leave the hospital um, alive instead of the massive uh, deaths that we were seeing at the beginning. And that's a huge accomplishment because doctors are just, they're, they're so burned out and they, they only want to be able to save people's lives. It's extremely, extremely stressful for anybody who's a clinician, especially those who are on the front lines. Very, very difficult. But we have no path. And we have, like, if you, if you um, say, break your ankle and you go for physical therapy, they have a protocol and they will test your range of motion and weight bearing and they'll give you exercises and then they'll test you in a week or two and they'll say, based on your range of motion and weight bearing, you've, you've recovered 20% and according to our charts, you should have recovered 25% or you're right on course for full recovery and they have everything mapped out with a time chart and with exercises. We have nothing like that for COVID, uh, but we also have nothing like that for the pandemic itself. The pandemic is a uh, disaster of uncertainty. And what that means is that we have no idea really when it began and we have no timeline for when it's going to be over. And we have no idea how many people are going to die from it or, or develop long-term or permanent health damage as a result of having survived the acute phase of it. It seems to me, Laurie, that one of the tragic consequences of the pandemic is the huge range of conspiracy theories that are developing. People are afraid of the vaccine. People are, uh, believe the, the pandemic was created by, uh, uh, by China as, as an act of covert warfare or that it was developed by UFOs uh, or uh, any number of scenarios, it seems as if the the mental health of the nation is at risk. Well, I think the mental health of the nation is at risk for so many reasons and that the conspiracy culture um, adds to the level of anxiety and agitation, you know, as unfortunately we've been seeing that uh, play out uh, in, in the news. Uh, I... I think it's very difficult to deal with unknowns in general. And uh, I, I was myself, I like to refer back to, I think a Native American shaman had said that, uh, that they like to, they like to live uh, according to this phrase, expecting the unexpected. And, you know, people who are used to unpredictability and uh, famines and wars and, um, you know, hunger and, uh, and diseases, uh, over centuries have developed a different kind of resilience uh, to deal with unexpected pathogens or unexpected politics. 
And we, you know, expect everything to be able to be fixed right away. Uh, we're a very impatient culture. We think that there have to be like like a cause and effect that's simple for us to understand. We may not we may not understand the real causes of this pandemic, um, you know, from a clinical standpoint. We might not understand it for years. I mean, there's so much that has to be studied. Um, the importance, I think, of looking at evidence and facts uh, when dealing with these unknowns is extremely important. And there are legitimate concerns about a vaccine that has not had two years of uh, clinical trials with human beings as, as the FDA normally requires. And many of my colleagues who are MDs have expressed you know, their concerns. However, I can tell you the more I work with people who have long haul COVID, I, I really believe in my heart and, and from what I've seen that the danger to your health long-term, should you get COVID and develop long COVID, the dangers to your health are far more are far more damaging and far-reaching than the possible risk of any side effect from a vaccine. And I say that as somebody who, of course, has concerns about untested vaccine or untested uh, medication. It's not that it, it hasn't been tested, but we don't have the normal data. We don't have longevity data about the vaccine. But we have to step back and look at the big picture and we have to also, I think, look at the contagion factor now that this disease is spreading exponentially and to really look at our role in our families and in our communities and uh, you know, really weigh up whether it's more important to protect ourselves and those around us uh, with, a, with a vaccine that is certainly going to mitigate and lower the risk of permanent damage to our health. And... That's my only political statement. Laurie, you're a psychologist with a background in metaphysics and, and psychic functioning. And I think it's interesting, maybe even more than interesting, important to understand how the psyche is being affected, not just people who contract COVID, but uh, the general population, the, the dream life of uh, the nation, in fact, the world. Now, the, the subject of dreams around uh, catastrophic events is, is fascinating. And uh, going back to uh, as far as a year before the attack on the World Trade Center, um, hundreds of people were reporting dreams to their therapists about planes flying into buildings, uh, birds flying into towers, uh, the archetype of the tower card from the tarot, people falling into the sky. Uh, several of my uh, patients themselves had dreams even as far back as 13 months before the attack of um, uh, standing on their balconies and seeing cl clouds of smoke and dirt coming from lower Manhattan to the south and seeing thousands of people running up through the streets and, uh, you know, seeing tanks and soldiers in the street. So, so these big events are in the collective unconscious and, uh, or they're in the field. If you, I sometimes think of, I like to use the term, the field and these, uh, and, and, and I think that intuition functions like a satellite dish in, in the brain or in the mind. And when we're asleep, we're able to receive um, impressions from the collective unconscious when we're sleeping in the form of dreams. 
and these are often uh, very accurate premonitions before uh, before a physical traumatic event. Um, I think that there's been some research into the uh, Schumann resonance, which is the uh, electromagnetic heartbeat of the Earth that people measure that that the Schumann resonance will show uh, a different uh, uh, kind of a, a, a brainwave or an electromagnetic wave that indicates distress uh, prior to a major event. And in my own practice, I have had people come to me before September 11th. Uh, I've had people come to me before Hurricane Sandy and say, this feels like it did a few months before September 11th. I'm having nightmares. I have a terrible feeling of dread. Um, I think this is also this also happened last year um, in early January. People were calling me with anxiety nightmares, with insomnia, with a feeling of impending doom, which, of course, as a New Yorker, I always think, oh, my God, it's going to be another attack. Uh, and we didn't know that it was going to be uh, some kind of a biological attack. But I think people were picking up on it. And, uh, you know, prior to uh, the current events that are happening now, many, many people have been reporting um, anxiety and nightmares um, prior to the election. And specifically in the few nights before the uh, siege on the Capitol steps, people were reporting nightmares and uh, insomnia and uh, agitation. So I think that you know, firstly, we're bombarded with so many uh, forms of data, visible and invisible, um, you know, um, electronic, electromagnetic, and uh, subliminal and intuitive and uh, Im impressions and signals that come in from other forms of consciousness and interlocking dimensions. Uh, so we don't, we don't even know what we're picking up most of the time. If you take a walk outside, you know, we are receiving signals of all kinds, all, and it's not, I'm not saying as a conspiracy person, oh, they're beaming, you know, they're being, being electrodes into my brain. We are, we are organisms with an electromagnetic field, and as such, we are impressionable to electromagnetic uh, signals that are coming at us from all different uh, dimensions and machines and satellites. Um, and as you remember, I'm sure that uh, we've spoken about this and you've interviewed people in the field of psychotronics who talked about the woodpecker signal. And the woodpecker signal was a signal that was uh, the Soviets were beaming, I think, out of Siberia that uh, sent out a, a signal of, I think it was 8.5 or 13 hertz. And it was the signal that causes agitation and there were incidences, I know there was one in Seattle, where um, I think over 100 people had epileptic seizures, and they drove off the road, and it was it, it turned out to have come from uh, electromagnetics, it came from some of the power waves, and there was some talk that it may have come from the woodpecker signal. So there are these influences that we know nothing about, and um, and I think that when when events are kind of reaching a, a precipitous point that we're able, um, whether we're conscious of them or not, we're able to pick up these transmissions and then we feel them in the body. You know, the unconscious mind uses the body as a signaling field. And so in a way, you could say that we're becoming more intuitive, but it is also a kind of the dark side of intuition because people are very often afraid 
when they have these nightmares or when they have an example of, of knowing. Uh, before 9-11, the day before 9-11, I had a gentleman come into my office, which was um, about a mile north of uh, the World Trade Center. And I had only met with him once or twice before. He was a, a man in his, I think, early 60s. And he burst into tears. And it was about three in the afternoon on Monday, September 10th. And he started crying and crying and crying. He said, I'm crying for all humanity. And of course, the next day, we had 9-11. I had not heard from this man in 17 years. And all of a sudden, a few years ago, I think it was two years ago, he called me out of the blue and said, um, I have to drive up from Virginia and meet with you in person. And I thought, uh-oh. You know, this is a sign. This man just didn't come out of the ether. I mean, I, I still remember that afternoon. And sure enough, he drove all the way from Virginia to tell me that he had another feeling of something catastrophic that was going to happen. And uh, as if we had not been in physical contact of any kind for that many years. And so, we, you know, I think that our, our mind, body, and our psyche is, uh, you know, it's, it's, like a, it's like a satellite dish. It's a receiving station when there, are, um, when there are events that are about to occur where the energy or the digital signals or the, electro, the electromagnetic energy shifts and we, are, we become more sensitive uh, and perhaps more psychic but it's kind of the dark side of intuition or the shadow side of intuition because we, we can pick up very clearly a sense of impending catastrophe, but we're helpless to prevent it and we don't know what it's going to be. And that is often very scary to people. I hear from people who are quite concerned about the impending development of 5G technology. It's a whole new spread all over the planet of new forms of electromagnetic radiation. And uh, I know many people are concerned that we're doing this without proper study of the effects. I would agree, uh, but nobody, nobody ever halts uh, the spread of technology when it's going to you know, make money for some corporation. Uh, some people have said to me that they're concerned that the 5G technology will be able to keep track of us and I've said to people, well, they can already keep track of us because if you have one of these, they know exactly where you are at any moment. And uh, that's, already, that's, that's already a done deal. But there are other concerns and, and possibly physiological concerns because I, I work with a number of people who have uh, environmental sensitivity. And I know people who cannot be in a building where there's 4G, never mind 5G. Well, back to dreams and nightmares. If people are having nightmares, and I find uh, that my dreams seem to be more vivid lately and uh, sometimes more disturbing, what do you recommend? Well, I think that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, we can program our dreams before we go to sleep. When my daughter was young and, and young, like six years old, and would have nightmares uh, every night before we went to sleep, before she went to sleep, although I usually fell asleep with her at seven o'clock, uh, I would say, let's talk to the dream fairy. And the dream fairy would come and I would change my voice and I would ask her, I would invite her to tell me, basically to design the dream that she wanted to have. 
and we would talk through the dream a couple of times. And those nights, she would actually have those dreams. She would dream about the Berenstein Bears and going to Coney Island and having a good time. And I think that there's something to talking to your subconscious before you go to sleep, or you can write a note and put that note under your pillow. And you can say, you know, to my dreaming mind, please send me a productive dream, or please send me a peaceful dream, or please send me a dream that can help me understand uh, a particular issue or theme in your life. And maybe looking at the big picture, you know, if we're looking at, uh, the, the work of Carlos Castaneda and the art of dreaming, perhaps this is an opportunity for us as a species to become uh, collective dreamers and to become shamanic dreamers and to really invite that part of our dreaming mind to co-create with us because then we, we, are, we will have very vivid dreams but we'll be less frequently at the mercy of the anxiety and fear which... Uh, as it happens, is a normal reaction to a very heightened and extreme situation that we find ourselves in right now, just as a species. Yeah, it strikes me that I mean, one of the issues is how many people are addressing their anxiety with medication right now. I'm under the impression that the pharmaceutical industry is doing very well because a huge percentage of the population is taking anti-anxiety medication. And I wonder if that really blocks the possibility of people appreciating the sacred dimension of addressing, confronting what's going on. Well, I think that's a really excellent point. Um, I know so many people who are on um, anti-anxiety medication, which is very useful to, to have, especially if you need to get up and work in the morning. Um, it's also, uh, excuse me, uh, anxiety medications can, uh, can be and are addictive. Um, any, any benzo uh, medication is uh, potentially dangerous. Um, it's, I, I have studied uh, clinical homeopathy. I have a postdoctoral diploma in homeopathy because I am always searching for uh, non-pharmacological alternatives to medication that can help with specific anxiety triggers such as dreams or heights or flying or public speaking. And uh, I think that as, although there are many people on medication, there's also a huge segment of the population that no longer wants to reach for, um, you know, pharmaceuticals, and they're looking for natural uh, and safe alternatives. Um, the last thing that we need during a pandemic or any emergency is a higher number of people coping with terrible addictions. Yeah, addiction has been a very serious problem. I think it's only just starting to be addressed. Uh, suicides, I think, are up as a result of addiction. So, so we're confronting these, these multiple problems. And it's understandable that almost everybody is going to be experiencing higher levels of anxiety. That might not translate into what you referred to earlier as a sacred illness. But I suppose it has to do with the attitude that people bring even to their anxiety. I think it really also has to do with, with two things, information and support. So when we have information about, um, you know, 
Actually, it's it's not simple anxiety that we're going through now. It's more trauma-related anxiety. And when we're talking about acute stress or post-traumatic stress, we're talking about a sudden life-threatening situation or a sudden violent situation where you either witness or you survive or your own life has been threatened or you've directly lost somebody due to a sudden violent event. And, and here's the, the clinical piece is that it fills you with a sense of helplessness and horror. And it's really important to get information to understand that if this is where your anxiety is coming from, you're having a normal reaction to an extreme and abnormal situation, and that, that the next step is to get support. So the two words that I think are most important, and I think it's true for people with long-haul COVID, people who are anxious about COVID, people who are uh, reacting to the um, the footage that we're seeing in the news, that uh, this type of anxiety is connected to real events. And it's important to understand that the physiology of trauma reactions can be overwhelming and intense. But when you understand that this is part of the normal spectrum of reactions, you can then get the right kind of support. And then you can decide if you want to pursue something more natural or whether you want to get medication. But get information and uh, find support. There are so many groups online for all kinds of anxiety and trauma situations. Um, and now that we're all kind of living in lockdown, I, I, I joke that lockdown is my way of life. But since we're all living in lockdown, you know, we have these wonderful resources on the web of all kinds of, of really high quality information. There are um, all kinds of uh, uh, clips on YouTube that demonstrate um, emotional freedom technique, which is the acupressure, which is tapping, hypnotherapy, um, Chinese medicine. You know, we, we have a whole range of things that we can pursue that will allow us to keep the space open to contemplate or reflect on how is the, the journey through this pandemic helping me to go within and learn things about myself that can be of benefit to myself and others down the road. So if we if we keep that that channel open, so to speak, and we keep if we keep that question in our minds, we can look for the information and support that we need, so that the trauma and the flashbacks and the anxiety doesn't consume us. It's so interesting that you mentioned we need to do this online because of the lockdown. People have been isolated largely now for uh, nine ten months and. I understand as a result of that, the divorce rate has gone up, that uh, couples are having a hard time being locked inside with each other. And also when you go online, I think part of the problem is that oftentimes if you're looking for chat groups and the like, people can be very nasty to each other online. I, I think that the, you know, normal social courtesies often break down. I don't like to interact with people online unless there's there's a personal I know them personally or is a, there's a professional reason for precisely that reason um, there are a lot of wild cards out there are people there are a lot of people who are very angry um, it's kind of like the wild west you know when you step into a chat room and uh, for me as an introvert uh, I find 
a lot of the just just the online social platforms are overwhelming. So I, I personally uh, tend to avoid them myself. But yeah, it, it's very tricky. There are people who are devastated because of something somebody said to them on Facebook or didn't say to them on Facebook. And um, you know, there are people who, who have actually had nervous breakdowns and even have committed suicide because of things that were posted on Facebook. And uh, so I, I personally kind of have stepped back from, from all social media that's not absolutely essential. But people are lonely and people are drawn to these forums and, and they, they serve a valid purpose for so many people. But it's it's a very dangerous world out there in the digital universe. So if somebody wants to find counseling or therapy online, are there resources that you would recommend? I like to recommend psychologytoday.com. Um, then they now have a directory for um, complementary and alternative therapists, holistic therapists, as well as traditional therapists. I think it's always a good place to start. You can uh, put in your zip code and you'll get a list of the people you know in your area. And it will also tell you which people uh, do tele telehealth, teletherapy. Um, you can look at your insurance plan and your insurance plan will also have a list of uh, therapists available. And uh, there are also many different professional associations. Um, if you're looking for something specific like a, a gestalt worker or a body worker, um, uh, Chinese Chinese medicine specialist. Um, you can Google just about anything and find an association that can connect you with with practitioners. So it's a great. We have this great resource. I mean, imagine if we had a pandemic and a lockdown, and we didn't have these resources online. Um, the isolation is a stress amplifier for so many people, and uh, we live in a very extroverted culture. And, uh, you know, being deprived of contact with people uh, is extremely uh, nerve wracking and distressing to probably most of the people in this country is it's gone on for so, so very long. And uh, so people crave the substitute of, uh, you know, meeting some meeting people online. And it's important that we have that we get some kind of social flow going, whatever that means to you. Well, Dr. Lori Nadell, this has been informative. It's been a heartfelt conversation. And I really appreciate your ability to see the, the positive benefit, the spiritual insights that can come out of e even the most traumatic situations. Lori, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.